All right, we're in uh, Genesis this morning, 29. Where we left Jacob, he has uh, encountered the God of Abraham and Isaac for the very first time, so it seems. Um, In the book of Job that book that highlights the, the biggest question that most people have is that why do bad things happen to good people? And um, most of us, we, you know, we are familiar with the first two chapters of Job, and then the last two chapters or three, you know, when everything kind of um, finishes up. But, uh, you know, we consider the great weight of the trials that he went through, and um, they, they scare the daylights out of us when we look at them. But they also touch something that's very real, and that is the fact of suffering in this life. And uh, probably the the biggest uh, gain or outcome that came to Job because of his experiences and his suffering, it's written at the very end of the book after God intervenes. And God basically uh, says, sit down, Job, I want to talk to you for a minute. And then, um, and then just kind of like blows his mind about how big he is, about how big God is, you know. And he says, "Were you there in the beginning when I laid the foundations of the earth? Oh, you do you you know do you know what it means that the earth is hung on nothing? And do you know how I did that? And you know, have you, are you the one that, that that creates pathways and a jet stream in the sea under the sea and paths for the lightning? And you know, were you there in the beginning when the sons of God, the angels, rejoiced at my word creating all things? And he just goes on and on and on and and just you know you. You can just almost feel Job getting smaller and smaller and smaller in his own eyes. And uh, after God finishes what he has to say, the words that come out of Job's mouth are some of the most profound words in all the Bible. And he says this, he says, um, I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And it just speaks to the opening up of his understanding uh, in a way that everything he had ever heard all of a sudden became very, very real. And it became very, very personal. And in a sense, that's what's beginning to happen in the life of Jacob uh, at this point, is that everything he's heard, he, you know, he's, the, he's the, the grandson of Abraham, he's the son of Isaac. And now, all of a sudden, everything that he's heard about God calling his ancestors and leading them and helping them and bringing them through trials and tribulations and, and all the rest, he's heard about so much. But it's been just a story. It's been something that's happened in their lives, uh, something that maybe Jacob could hope for, something that he he certainly was hungry for. He wanted the birthright. It was, you know, there was reality. There was faith there, but it hadn't become his own yet. And now as he's launched out uh, away from his parents and he spends a night with the the, the rocks as the pillow for his head and and, and his whole life is just in uncertainty. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? What is the plan? Why is all this happening? It it tells us in chapter 28 where we left off that God met him there and he revealed himself in a very real way and he spoke to Jacob in a way that Jacob had never heard before. And all of a sudden now there's a a, a relationship that's no longer uh, Abraham's relationship, it's no longer Isaac's relationship, but now it's Jacob's relationship. And it's just beginning and that's where we resume in verse 1 of chapter 29. It says that then Jacob went on his journey. Notice the word then that opens up the passage. 
that it was when the relationship became his own, when it was no longer something he had heard of, but now God had met with him personally, it says that then the journey began. And that's how it is for every one of us. You know, we, you know we're born into this world separated from God. And in his time and in his way, he brings us to the point of salvation when we give our lives to him. And, and, and our eyes are opened. It's the beginning. It's just a glimmer, you know, much like an infant that comes into this world. They come out of the womb. And, you know, they've come out of an environment where they were very much alive. There was a heartbeat. And there was a pulse. And there were dimensions. And, you know, there were chromosomes. And everything was there. And it was alive. But all of a sudden, it passes through the birthing canal. And for the first time, it can see. And that there's light. And then there's sight. And then there's touch. And all the senses come alive all at once, and there's a whole world. And that infant is, is as alive as it is. It knows absolutely nothing. And in a sense, you could say it's been born into a whole new world, and now a journey begins, a journey that will carry it through infancy, and then toddler, and childhood, and then teenage years, and then young adulthood, and then middle ages. And then, you know, and there's this whole journey that begins in the physical sense. And the same thing is true spiritually. When our eyes are opened, we're born into the kingdom of God. We, we, truth is revealed. There's a whole new set of senses. There's a spiritual, uh, a whole spiritual dimension that was there. It was always there, but we didn't know it. And now our journey begins. And uh, much like Abraham's, when God spoke to him and said, leave this place and go where I'll show you. And a journey began, not just physically, but spiritually. Same with Isaac. And now for Jacob. And it's an incredible thing to realize that every one of us that sits here in this room right now is on a journey. And that journey is as unique to us as the, you know, the fingerprint of our face and what it looks like and the sound of our voice and our personality and, and, and all that makes us as unique as we are. That is the journey that God has for every one of us. And there will, no doubt, be things that are very similar to, to, to what God does in all of his kids. It will bear the likeness in some sense to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and all the others. But it is as unique in everything else as we are ourselves. But it is very much a journey that God brings us on, and it's so glorious. I love what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Acts, chapter 20, when he's talking to the elders at Ephesus for the last time. And uh, he, knew that, he knew that he was headed to Jerusalem, and he didn't know what was going to happen when he got there, but he knew it wasn't going to feel good. He knew he was headed for some pain. And his response to that, he, when he talks about the pain and the suffering that awaited him when he got to Jerusalem, his words were this. He said, but none of these things move me, neither do I count my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy." And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the grace of God. And so Paul looked at his life and he saw his journey and he said, God has a course for me. And there's a ministry. There's a reason why I'm in this world. And he said, that in and of itself means more to me than anything else in this world. It means more than my comfort. It means more than anything. And that I might finish my course. And would to God that we would see our lives in that way. That we would see our lives as so much more than just the physical of, 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 of what we do in this world or what we want in this world, but that we see it through the lens of God. God, what do you have for my life? What did you put me on this earth to do and to accomplish? And, and what place do I serve in your kingdom now? And why haven't I been taken to heaven yet? 
and that we would come into a place where we recognize that it isn't an accident, that God's not looking for a place for us, He has a place for us, and that that would become the highest priority and aim of our life, is to be in the very center of that will and to fulfill that plan with the greatest amount of productivity and fruit that we can by His grace. And that's what Jacob's beginning here. It says, then went Jacob on his journey. And it says he came into the land of the people of the east. And it says that he looked and behold, a well in the field. And lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well, they watered the flocks and a great stone was upon the well's mouth. And so he comes into the region now of Haran. And as he comes there, he comes to the place that is a well. Now, uh, aside from the, um, the obvious narrative, the surface of this, that he came to a place where there was a well, the well in the Bible is always a very significant uh, place or a significant thing. It speaks, as we look at it in Scripture, to so much more than just a, you know, a geographical spot in a town. The well is always in the Bible, the place where uh, the, the spiritual source is. You know, so it speaks of you know, the place of leading and the place of meeting and the place of refreshing and the place of circumstance and the place of revelation. And as you just begin to trace throughout the Bible the things that happen at a well or when the Holy Spirit brings it up that there was a well, there's always something that's much greater happening in it than just someone getting a drink of water or watering a flock. You know, you recall that it was Hagar when she was by the well of Lahairoi that God opened her eyes and revealed to her that he was the one that was governing her circumstances and he revealed himself as the God who sees me and that became the name of that well that she came to the place of refreshing. You remember when Abraham's servant uh, came to very much the same place right now, it could in fact be the exact same well that Jacob finds himself at right now, that Abraham's servant all those years before had come into the same region on a mission from God. And it was at the well that, uh, that God's leading, that God's plan unfolded for Abraham and for Isaac as Rebekah was there carrying the pitcher. And she said, let me water your camels also. I'll, g- I'll gather water for them. And God's leading there. I think of Jacob here and what's taking place in his life. I think of Jesus when he came to the well in uh, Samaria and the woman that met him there at that well. And it was a place of salvation and a place where where the physical well uh, touched the heavenly well, the spiritual well, where Jesus said that if you drink of this water, you'll thirst again. But if you drink the water that I will give, you'll never thirst again. And it will spring up within you into a well that overflows into eternal life. And so the well is so significant in the Bible because it speaks of the source of all of life. And it speaks of the place where the well or where the flock is watered. It speaks of the place where spiritual things are poured forth. And we see that that's where Jacob went first. He went for the place where the well, where the water was. In many respects, the well in the the modern day um, has reference into the church itself. You know, I mean, if you think about uh, in a spiritual sense, where do God's people go to be uh, watered or led or inspired or refreshed or, uh, you know, um, illuminated, so to speak? And the answer is just the church. And Paul, the Apostle Paul said that, um, you know, the church is the pillar and the ground of the, of the truth. Jesus said to Peter and, and, and to the apostles on the, the, um, the day when... Uh, um, 
when, when they were at Caesarea Philippi and, and Peter said, uh, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And Jesus said, uh, Peter said, you, you're the Christ. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the church in the modern day is very much the way that God reveals himself to the world. And so it's interesting, as we look at Jacob now coming to this well, we see him going to the place where their spiritual things are most apt to happen. He's lost, in a sense. He's looking for a direction for his life. He wants to be led of the Lord. What am I doing here, God? And he goes to the best place that he can. He goes to the well. He goes to the place where spiritual things are going to happen, where the flocks are watered. It's a, it's a great place to go uh, when you come into a new area or where you're, when you're looking for things, the things of God, is to be around the well, uh, to come to that place. And the amazing thing is, is if we look at what happened to Jacob, it was the perfect place for him to be. It was absolutely the will of God. And so it says in verse 3 that there were all the flocks gathered, And it says that they rolled the stone from the well's mouth and they watered the sheep and then they put the stone again upon the well's mouth in his place. And so very much controlled by someone, we don't even know who, but by Jacob very soon. And it says that Jacob said unto them, my brethren, whence be ye? Or where are you from? So he doesn't even know where he is. He doesn't have a map or GPS or an iPhone or anything to to tell tell him. He's he's wandering and here he comes to this place. He says, where are we? Where, where, Where are you from? And they said, Of Haran are we. And he said unto them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said unto them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And behold, Rachel, apparently everyone knew who she was, we'll find out why in a minute, (laughs) his daughter cometh with the sheep. And he said, Lo, it is yet high day. Neither is it time that the cattle should be gathered together. Water ye the sheep and go and feed them. Now, I mean, just put yourself there for a minute. You know, Jacob looks and in the haze of of the, you know, the hot desert sun, he sees this hourglass walking towards him, you know, with the sheep and, you know, the whole thing. And he he looks around and he sees a bunch of shepherds. He looks at himself. He's like, huh. It's like, hey, why are you guys still here? Don't you, yeah, don't you have somewhere to go? You know, <laughs> uh, you know, water the, the flock and 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 get out of here. You know, Duh, why are you here? You know, just maybe a little privacy or something. <laughs> and they said their re- reply. He says, or they say, we cannot. Notice the excuse is an excuse, and we're going to see that it's an excuse. Until all the flocks be gathered together. Until they roll the stone from the well's mouth. Notice that the they is obscure. Who in the world is this they? And then we water the sheep. And while he yet spake with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. And it came to pass that when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near. And so Jacob, no doubt, learning that this is Laban's daughter, and this is the same Laban, that it's his uncle, essentially, Rebecca, his mother's brother, the same Laban who was there when Abraham's servant went and, uh, you know, essentially attained Rebecca for for Isaac. Now, he sees Laban and that this is his daughter, and then he sees the sheep of Laban, and no doubt the, the wheels of opportunity are beginning to arise within this conniving, manipulative uh, young Jacob. He sees this is 
maybe a wife, and this is the sheep, maybe a job. I'm beginning to see that there's something that could happen here. And so uh, the strength of, of great youthful ambition uh, rises up within Jacob at this point, and it says that he, singularly now, rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And so he goes over, he sees the stone, he sees this woman, sees these sheep, sees the situation. An opportunist, capitalist, he goes over and he rolls the stone away single-handedly um, by himself in this. couple of things here. First of all, don't ever depend on someone else to roll the stone away for you. You know, it is absolutely certain that as we come even to a time like this, you know, and we open up the Bible and, and, and morning by morning, moment by moment, uh, you know, the Bible is looking at us. It's in, as it were, the cover of your Bible is as it were a stone that covers the greatest well in all of the world. You know, there's no source. There's nothing greater. Uh, there's no, no other source of truth or uh, of, of fellowship with God or of insight in for our lives or of just nourishment that edifies the soul and uplifts the spirit. There's nothing like the well that we have within the word of God. And I think the greatest obstacle that keeps people from uh, receiving from that well is the cover of the book itself because it's just a matter of opening it up. It's the easiest thing, you know, in a sense, we think, well, how in the world could I get anything out of it? You know, it seems like whatever, if I try, it doesn't matter and whatever. So when everybody's gathered together, once all the people come, then they can open it for us. You know, and someone else can, can uncover this well and, and water the flocks, you know. And I believe that many times the Holy Spirit would just look at us and say, why are you sitting here spiritually idle? And, you know, we would make an excuse or whatever. And, and, and all the while, we have the opportunity to roll the stone back just by ourselves, just to peel the cover back and begin to read it. In 1 John, uh, the Bible says that you do not need that anyone teach you. But it says that we have an anointing from the Holy One and that the anointing or the unction that he gives will teach us all things. And there's something supernatural that happens when we just choose to have a personal relationship with our Bible, in a sense. And we peel back the stone, we roll it away, and we open it up, and we just begin to read it. And as we read it, we might even say at first, well, you know, there's just a trickle. You know, there's something there. I'm reading the words, but I don't know what's going in. But as we continue, the flow of water always increases. And I've found over the years that even the smallest thing that you think is insignificant, it gets in. Even if it's just a fact, you don't even know what it means. You know, it could be something as simple as, you know, a woman, there was a woman from Samaria. You know, and it, you just read that, it, you know, it's just a fact. Okay, there was a woman from Samaria. But it might be that a week later, you read something else that happened in Samaria. And the fact that there was a woman there that Jesus met just comes to life. And it explodes with truth and context and dimension and then application. And God begins to apply it to your life as you realize things that you never thought that you could. And he does it in a way that you never would have received in a church service or that no one else could have prepared it for you or given it to you, but it comes from the Spirit of God himself. And when that happens, there, there's nothing more enriching than to realize that God is speaking to me through his eternal word. Or when there's truth or when God does that thing where you, there's a verse you've read a hundred times and you've read it a hundred times, but on the hundred and first time you read it, it comes to life. And you, you realize God is speaking to me in this and there's, there's relationship and it's real and it's satisfying. Open the book. 
Open the, open the well. Roll the stone away. Don't, don't make it someone else's job and lie idle in the day. The Bible says that this life that we have right now, that we're in the day, the night is coming when no man can work, but we are children of the day, the Bible says. So during the day, roll the stone, drink, and then move spiritually in the things of God. Be people of the book. The other thing I see in this is that this will not be the first time, or this will not be the last time that a man will roll a stone away for the sake of attaining a bride. And what we see in this is we see Jacob, and we see a man who sees a woman, and that woman so beautiful to him that she's worth the whole world to him, and that there's no weight, there's nothing that, 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 that is going to keep him back from supplying the thing that she needs or the thing that he can do in order to draw her to himself. And I find it comforting that, the, that there was a man, a greater than Jacob, that looked at us, and it was worth his while in order to attain us or to impress us or to show us that he had what we, what we need in this life, that he was willing to roll the stone back by himself without the help from anyone else to open up the source of the well, the wellspring of eternal life. And that's Jesus. That's what he did. He rolled back the stone for the sake of attaining a bride. And so he watered the flock of Laban, his brother. And then in verse 11, it says that Jacob kissed Rachel. Yep, he's not very socially adjusted. <laughs> you know, we saw that <laughs> in the last chapter. What is she thinking in all this? What is everybody else thinking? Is like, you know, maybe she didn't pull away and they're thinking, why didn't we try that? You know, we've been trying to land her for, <laughs> for all these days. And that's all it took. That was easy, you know. But it says that he lifted up his voice and wept. And certainly there's a, a, a bit of propriety in this. I'm certain that uh, it's very discreet, um, probably maybe on the hand or, or just something as he realizes what's going on here. But I believe that what's going on in Jacob right now is just an overflow of gratitude. As, as, he, as he realizes where he is, and perhaps flooding into his mind is that story of Abraham's servant by perhaps this very well in Haran. And realizing that that's where God led Abraham and led Isaac. And now that that's where God's leading him. And all at once he's realizing that though he's just wandering, he's absolutely being led. That God is leading him. God has led him to this place. And he sees Rachel. He sees the flock. He's in Haran. It's Laban's family. He's like, God, you are so incredibly good. And haven't we had times like that in our life where we feel like we're just wandering? And in one moment something happens that just makes us realize that we are in the very center of the will of God. He's just, he's just brought us to a checkpoint, if you will. And we say, thank you, Lord, that, <laughs> that I am here in this place. And that is the emotion that's in this man as he realizes that he is very much being led by God. And so it says that Jacob told Rachel, probably should have told her this before the kiss, but you know, <laughs> everything in their order. It says that Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rebekah's son. And her reply to that is that she ran and told her father. So the first time we gain any insight into this woman, we see that she's keeping the flock. But here now we see that she is motivated uh, to see things happen in her own life as well. And no doubt she also knew the story of that well. And she, she no doubt knew the story of her Aunt Rebecca and how there had been this mysterious man that came from 500 miles away and, uh, and, had, and had brought her great bracelets and gifts and how she was carried off in this fairy tale like story. And she became a princess, as it were, you know, the wife of a wealthy man whom God was leading and, uh, you know, linked with Abraham, the great man, you know, and all the rest. And now, Rachel, you can imagine day by day, uh, this young girl thinking, will that ever happen to me? 
Will it ever happen to me like that, that God would have a plan for me as great as he did for my aunt? And, uh, and here now, as Jacob comes, a glimmer of hope revives within her, and she runs now uh, to and told her father. And now the father, who knows the story too, verse 13. And the same came to pass, that when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran. <laughs> All right. Now, Laban had dollar signs in his eyes. Okay? We already met him. And we saw this in him uh, the first time. As soon as he saw the bracelets on Rebecca's hands and the earring or the nose ring that had been put in her nose, he became extremely interested in this unnamed servant uh, that had been sent from the southern regions, you know. And now, as uh, Jacob, the son, the grandson of Abraham and son of Isaac, comes uh, and here he hears this thing it says that he ran to meet him and he embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house and he told Laban all these things and so Laban said unto him surely you are my bone and my flesh and he abode with him for the space of a month and so for just a month now there's kind of this uh, getting to know one another this uh, becoming acquainted with each other getting to know the life what it's like there in Haran and all the rest and and uh, uh, family ties being established. And it says that Laban, in verse 15, said unto Jacob, Because you are my brother, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? And so he sees in, in Jacob, he knows what he's doing. He's good with the sheep, uh, good to have around. Um, all he's got right now is a daughter watching the flock. It'd be good to have the, the strength of a, a male shepherd. And so um, offers him a job. And so he says, what will your wages be? And so it says that Laban had two daughters, and the name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Now Leah, the older daughter, was tender-eyed. Now that's gracious, um, gracious biblical language for she made your eyes tender. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't as though, you know, like there was just this unique beauty about her eyes and it was captivating and it was a piece and, and the whole thing, you know, it was that it was, she wasn't the most pleasant uh, to look at. So there was an effect. You know how when you have a tender piece of meat, it affects you. You know, it's like, wow, this is tender. You notice it. And, and basically he's saying, you notice. When you look at Leah, you notice something, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and she was tender-eyed. But Rachel, contrast, was beautiful and well-favored. And so there's the context, how you know, you know, you get the idea of what the Holy Spirit's trying to communicate to us here in gracious terms. <laughs> the Bible um, very, very much is real, you know, <laughs> in the way that it puts things forward. You know, there's, there's the ideal and there's the, you know, supposed to be, and then there's the reality. And, and God doesn't ignore the reality of things. Um, and, and God absolutely sees these things, you know, that there, there is those that are tender-eyed and there's those that are beautiful. And, um, you know, God knows that beautiful people can have an advantage in this life, you know, but he knows how to make things even out, as we'll see by the end of the chapter. And so uh, don't be discouraged if you're like me. And I was telling my kids the other night that um, I was telling them the other night, I forgot what, what Bible story it was. Um, oh, we were talking about, the, we we're going through the commandments and we were talking about covetous not being covetous. And I was telling them how when I was a child, I was trying to relate to them because they're kids, uh, how I wasn't 
you know, I was Leah, you know, in a lot of ways, not just, you know, whatever, but, you know, I had this weird face and all the features were kind of scrunched in. I was overweight kid and, you know, and I just coveted everyone else, you know, and the whole thing. Wished I could be the athletic, popular, well put together, socially adjusted person and all the rest. And they just had so many advantages that I didn't have. And I wished I could be them and the whole thing. And, you know, and it unfolded into uh, me, me saying to them that if, if that had been the case and if God had made me that way, then you wouldn't be here. You know, I said to them right now, you absolutely wouldn't be here because if if it hadn't been for that, I wouldn't have um, married Georgia, my wife. The reason is because um, she was the well put together, well adjusted, beautiful, you know, talented, smart person, but she didn't like well put together, beautiful, talented, smart people. You know, and thus I became the beneficiary (laughs) so undeservedly. And now I can look back and say, thank you, God, just for that one thing alone. You know, for that one thing alone, that that you knew that that's what what I needed to be in order for me to be today where I am and where I will be tomorrow. You know, so, you know, you may feel like, wow, I don't have the advantage of what many other people in the world have but that doesn't matter with God because he uses all of the factors that make our lives what they are to work all things together for the good for our future. And that's always true across the board. We're going to see that happen for Leah by the end of the chapter. God's going to come to her in two ways, two ways, and bless her life very abundantly. And so uh, Jacob says in, in verse, uh, or it says to us in verse 18, it says that Jacob loved Rachel. And he said that I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. And so they make a contract here, seven-year deal worth $150 million. Uh, no, just kidding. You know, it's not baseball. It's um, shepherding. I didn't know it could be so lucrative. And he said, I, I'll give you seven years. You give me your younger daughter. And Laban agrees. So they spit on their hands. They shake hands. Uh, it's a done deal in, in the whole thing, as it were, <laughs> Jacob wishes. And it says, it says in verse 20 that Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love that he had unto her. By the way, this is not the last time that a man will toil or labor for seven years for the sake of attaining a bride. And the context, of course, of that is none other than Jesus himself. When we think about um, the, the price that he paid in order to attain and secure a bride for himself, what it cost him was it cost him the absorbing of all of the wrath of God. Every bit of God's uh, um, rec- re- replenish. Re- requirement for sin and what sin cost and what sin did. It says that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every sin that mankind ever placed was on him. Well, you say, how in the world do you measure that price? How do you determine or put a cost or a figure on that? Well, God does it in the Bible and he does it in the book of Revelation because when he talks about for, you know, 15 or 14 chapters 6 through 19, 13 chapters. When he talks about the wrath that will be poured out on the world that rejects Christ, you can quantify what sin costs. Now, in order for Jesus to pay that price, 
It means that on the cross and during that passion uh, uh, um, section of his life, he had to endure in himself the equivalent of those seven years of tribulation that are coming upon the world that are highlighted in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Meaning that Jesus paid seven years worth of tribulation in those hours that he suffered for the sake of securing a bride, the bride of Christ. The church is his bride to himself. And so this wouldn't be the last time that this will happen, that a man would, would, would see beauty and so much love someone else that he'd be willing to pay so great a price to secure her as his bride. And that, that, that should warm our hearts this morning as we consider that that's us, that that was Jesus, willing to take the punishment for our sin and willing to labor and toil. And, and then the commentary on that is that it seemed as but a couple of days. Interesting, isn't it? How long was the actual passion? A couple of days, right? I mean, the agony and then the, the suffering on the cross and then three days in the grave and then he rose again, <laughs> you know? And it was just a couple of days but it was seven years worth of wrath that was, that was uh, obtained in those couple of days and for the sake of securing a bride. And he has done it, and we are the beneficiaries of it. And it says it seemed but a few days for the love he had to her. By the way, um, you know, if, if you want to know what love is, uh, this is a very good picture of it. You know, we, we hear a lot about um, men who say to their women, uh, I love you so much, I don't think I can keep my hands off you for another moment. That's not love, <laughs> because what we see here is it says that he loved her so much that not only was he willing to keep his hands off her for a couple of days, but for a few years, and it says that those years flew by because of the love that he had. It was no problem for him. True love waits, and Jacob was certainly willing to, uh, to endure that. And so Jacob then said to Laban, and I love how the Holy Spirit can skip seven verses with a little space on a page. I wish we could do that. It says that Jacob said unto Laban, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled. So a couple days for him, about three seconds for us, that I may go in unto her. What's on his mind after seven years of, (laughs) please, she's reaching her expiration date. Give me the woman. (laughs) This gets recorded, doesn't it? (laughs) Can't figure out why the podcast numbers keep going down. (laughs) It says that Laban gathered together all the men of the place, and he made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, tender-eyed, his daughter, and brought her to him, and he went in unto her. Now, this immediately raises a couple of questions in my mind. (laughs) You know... Yeah, somebody asked a couple of weeks ago, how did Isaac not know the difference between lamb and venison? Uh, I want to know, how did Jacob not know the difference between Leah and Rachel, you know? Um, you know, the practical level, you know, the veil that they used in the wedding that we do even to this day was certainly something that they used in those days. And so, um, you, you know, she would be veiled um, probably, it seems, until the time of consummation. It wouldn't be that, you know, lift the veil and kiss the bride because absolutely at that point, uh, he would have known who it was that he was standing in front of, you know. 
Uh, but that didn't happen. And so there's some something going on here that wherein he did not see her until they went into the tent. Second of all, you know, it had to have been then at that point been after dark. Or it could have been that Rachel went through the ceremony of whatever sort that it was, but then when it was time for, you know, whatever, Laban did this whole thing where he just kind of switched the names on the tent. You know, he took Jake, put it there and put her name there, and Leah thought she was going in, Rachel thought she was going in there, and Leah's going in there, and Laban locks the zipper, you know. <laughs> or whatever it is, and says, no, no, you can't come out. Jacob's in there, and maybe there's a little bit of wine, the wedding. Uh, you know, we don't know how this happened. You know, it's one of those mysteries that we'll have to ask, Jacob, what in the world? Didn't you know? <laughs> you know, he's like, it was seven years. I was, I was backed up. I didn't even think to look, you know, and uh, who knows, you know, why, why, how, how did this happen? I don't know. Um, but he certainly doesn't blame himself uh, in the whole thing. But it says uh, that Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zip, Zilpah, his maid for a handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And I think there should be an exclamation point there. You know, from Jacob's, you know, from my perspective, it's like, it was Leah. You know, from Jacob's, it's Leah. You know, what, what, what in the world is this, you know? And so he said to Laban, what is this that you've done unto me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Wherefore then have you beguiled me? Circle those words. Who are we dealing with here? We're dealing with Jacob. What has been Jacob's way of survival, his method of life all the way up until this point? His name is heel catcher. That's who he is. Everything that he has ever done in his whole life has been through beguiling. He tricked Esau into selling the birthright. Then he deceived Isaac, his father, into giving him the blessing rather than Esau. So much cunning and trickery. Everything he's ever done has been done in this way. And now what's happening in Jacob's life is that he is reaping what he has sown. Jesus said, with whatsoever measure you give out, it will be measured back to you again. The world says it like this, what goes around comes around. And that is absolutely biblical. The Bible says God is not mocked and that if we sow to the wind, we will reap the whirlwind. You always reap more than what you sow. I heard someone say last night that uh, you can count the number of seeds in an apple but you can never count the number of apples in a seed. And that is absolutely true when it comes to the things that we do and the ways in which we walk within this life. That if we sow contrary to the ways of God and the word of God, that we can expect to reap contrary to the blessing of God and the goodness of God. And that's true in our lives all the time. And Jacob has lived by the seed of his own thoughts and his own ways. And now he's reaping it back in the things that happen to him. And it won't be the last time. He will reap a harvest for the years in which he lived according to his own intellect. And this is just the beginning of it. And so why have you beguiled me? And Laban, just very matter of fact, uh, calculated, knew what he was doing, ready for this confrontation. He said in verse 26, he said, it must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Now, just as Jacob wasn't honest about why he did what he did, neither is Laban. The reality is, where in the world am I going to find a wife for Leah? 
Because <laughs> why isn't she married yet? You know, there's a reason for it. You know, why are you selling this car so cheap? I don't know. You know, I just don't need it anymore. Yeah, <laughs> can't find a buyer. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and so it shouldn't be done. It's not cultural. We don't marry off the younger before the firstborn. And so he says in verse twenty-seven, "Fulfill her week." Now he's a cultural marker here. Is that uh, very typical in in that culture, in that part of the world, and Hebrew traditions even unto this day? That wedding wasn't a day; it was a week. Um, they would spend an entire week in festivities, uh, partying. It was a huge occasion. People would take a week off of work, travel to wherever it was, and they would feast and celebrate for an entire week when there would be a marriage, especially of this magnitude. And so he says, fulfill Leah's seven days. Give Leah the dignity of having, uh, you know, what every woman wants. And, and that is a marriage that, you know, is to, to, to the wildest of her expectations. And though this is maybe one of the worst things that you think could ever be happening to you, Jacob, uh, for Leah, who is very much a person and very much loved by God, uh, fulfill her week. So you put your game face on, Laban says right now. This is the way it's going to be. I'm calling the shots in this. It's done. You made the covenant. She's yours. You, took, you slept with her. You took her. She's yours. So put your game face on and fulfill her week. Uh, you know, have a good attitude about what's coming. I, I like this so in a way. You know, sometimes we reap things um, that we don't necessarily like. Things come come back at us. They come back around to us, and uh, and, and it's a harvest of our own doing. If we're honest with ourselves, and and God would look at us and the whole thing. We say, God, what in the world? I never expected this. And He said, Put your game face on. No harvest lasts forever. So, so, so deal with this. I'm working all things together for the good uh, and, 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 and be a big boy in, in things. And so he says, fulfill her week. And then we will give this, that is Rachel, also for the service, which you shall serve with me yet seven other years. So, okay, contract extension. You want Rachel? <laughs> you can have her, but she's going to cost you 14 you know, now you're going to serve seven more years and you get two for two. It's not two for one, two for two. You seven, seven years per, per daughter. <laughs> and uh, I like you. Obviously, we're going to learn that um, Jacob was very, very good at what he did. And so I want seven more years from you. And so Jacob did, did so. Now, God is in this. You, you ever have a setback, uh, especially when it comes to time? I don't know if this is something that's, um, that's universal for all men or if it's just me. But I, time to me is so much more precious than so many other things. Uh, oftentimes way more precious than money, you know, to, 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 to have time. It just, you know, money, you can make more. You, it comes, it goes, you loses. The, the value of it ex- up and down all the time, so unstable. But time is so constant. And you get so much of it, and that's it. And uh, sometimes a setback can come into our lives that we realize is going to cost us uh, nothing but time. And that can be a very discouraging thing. But we ought to take comfort in this. It says that in the Bible that, his, that our times are in his hands. David said that you knew every one of my days, that's time, before any of them was lived. And sometimes things happen to us that become like a setback for us. We think, well, I, you know, I was on the five-year plan, and the five-year plan just became the 10-year plan, or it became the 20-year plan. And that can, that can sometimes discourage us because it changes the, the whole scope of what we could forecast for our own lives. But uh, God doesn't see it that way. He, he sees us that we're on a course that's been ordained by him. It's his journey, his map, his plan. And we should take rest, and even in those setbacks, that he's using those things and that they're a part of his purpose 
um, for us. I don't think any one of us right now, maybe somebody in here is so blessed, but I don't think any one of us, if, if you asked where you wanted to be five years ago today, would say, I'm right where I want to be, right where I wanted to be, you know, <laughs> blessed are the flexible, because you better be flexible in this life, period. That's the end of that proverb. <laughs> and so it says that Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Bilhah, his handmaid, to be her maid. So now he's got four women in his life. <laughs> and so he went in also unto Rachel. So he didn't have to work seven years and wait. So, you know, he, he got her at the end of the week. And it says that he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and he served with him yet seven other years. And so you can automatically see the tension that's going to come out of this. Uh, there's tension. There's pain. For, for Jacob, there's strife. You know, everyone in this equation is, is, is definitely uh, under pressure because of what's going on in, in this whole thing. And so um, Leah is feeling great pain. Uh, Rachel is feeling great competition. Uh, Jacob is feeling great, great strife. And wait till you see what happens in the next chapter, as he would just probably rather be alone in the desert again. But it says in verse 31, um, in this, and I love this. This is just so good. It says that when the Lord, don't ever forget that in, in every situation, no matter what we're facing, whether it's pain, whether it's strife, whether it's competition or envy or anything else, there's always the Lord, that he's in it. He, Lord means that he is sovereign over it, whatever that it is. It says that when the Lord saw, and he sees, that Leah was hated he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So God knows how to equal things out, and he always does. I'm convinced that there is an equality that exists in the accounts of heaven that you and I can't see, nor do we understand. But I believe that when we do see all things, when we know even as we're known in that day, and that day is coming, and we look and we say, God, why did... Why was I so stupid, you know, or, you know, or whatever, you know, why, why did I lack in this area? And, you know, other people had it so good. Or why did I spend my entire life dirt poor and I just watched everyone else just thrive and prosper. I just felt like my whole life I was suppressed and everyone else just had such freedom. You know, why? And God shows us all the factors and things that we can't see. We're going to see that there is a great equality. Even between people, you know, we live in this country and we think of the great advantages we have over people that live in other parts of the world. You know, but from God's perspective, he knows how to equal things out. He knows how to do that and he does it in, in ways that we can't understand. And he is completely equitable and fair. And the Bible says that he's not a respecter of persons. So don't be, don't be discouraged when things don't happen for you the way that you want. There is somewhere else in your life an advantage that someone else doesn't have. And, and would to God that we would see those things, that we wouldn't waste our life wishing that we were something and missing what we really are. And so uh, her, her womb was open, but Rachel was barren. Now he's going to deal with Leah. Okay, so Leah's been slighted, but Leah's got a problem too, and God's going to fix it. I love how God can fix so many things at the same time. It says that when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, in verse 32, and Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband 
will love me. And, and uh, Reuben simply means see a son. And, uh, and, and, and in Leah's mind, that the thing that Jacob wanted the most in, in things was a son. And so she thinks, okay, I know that he doesn't like me as much as he likes Rachel. And my desire is absolutely to be loved by my husband. And so now I'm giving to him a son. And so certainly now the tide will turn towards me. He'll favor me more than her because I'm the one who's being productive. Problem with that logic is that we don't know that Jacob necessarily wanted a son or that that's what he valued in life. And this isn't going to work you know, what it is that Leah is thinking. I think one of the big mistakes that we make in marriage, and men and women are equal in in this mistake, is that we put upon our spouse um, that they are going to appreciate and like the same things or, or hold the same kind of values that we do. So we think that if something is valuable to us, that, that, that automatically it's going to be valuable to them. Now, every woman in the world, what, what do they want? They want to be a mom. You know, it's one of the four things that God says is, is an extreme want in an individual. It's, it's for a, a woman to bear a child. It's what they are made for and wired to do. But what Leah does is she thinks, well, because I want this so bad, he must want it equally as bad as I do. And so what satisfies me is going to satisfy him. And it doesn't work. And that's what we think in marriage. We want something in our marriage. And so what we do is that we provide that something for our spouse. And we think, well, now that you know, I'm giving to them the thing that I want the most, now they're going to do what I want for me. You know? And it doesn't work. People get frustrated. Men and women are different. Did you know that? Maybe you came this morning and that's all you needed to hear. <laughs> we don't value, we don't put equal value on the same things by design. And what that does is it teaches us how to love someone else selflessly. Because it means we have to get into someone else's world and provide things that mean almost nothing to us, but that might mean everything to someone else. So she, she, she kind of um, projects her desire upon him, thinking that it's going to turn his affection towards her, but it doesn't. And so it says then, it's verse 33, she wants his love, doesn't work. She says that she conceived again and bare a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I was hated, he has therefore given me this son also, and so she called his name Simeon, and Simeon means hearing. So she's basically saying, God has heard the affliction of my heart, the unspoken crying in the night, and uh, he's, he's rewarded me a son in, in this whole thing, and maybe I will no longer be hated by my husband at least in comparison to Rachel. And it says that then she conceived again. So let's try this again. God is seeking to do something here. We'll see what it is in a minute because he's going to succeed. He always succeeds. And it says that she bare a son and she said, now this time, try number three. And it's actually going to be three strikes and you're out. This time will my husband be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Levi means joined. And so she wants, she wants to be joined to her husband. She wants this cleaving to finally take place between the two of them, and it's just not happening. And it doesn't happen now either, even according as she hopes. But then in verse 35, God wins. Here it is. It says, And she conceived again, and she bare a son, and she said, Now, biggest words, highlight them, underline them, memorize them, never forget. Now, I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, and notice, and she left off bearing. And what's the idea here? Is that something 
didn't change in the situation, and it didn't change in the situation, but something absolutely did change in Leah. And that is that she had been looking for satisfaction and completion in something that could never bring satisfaction or completion. And even if Jacob had, after the first or second or third son, turned his affection towards Leah, and she did somehow become the favored one. You know, Leah, I've had a real change of heart. You know, outward appearance is no longer valuable to me. <laughs> and, and now I just want kids, and I want to be a family man, and I want to get a station wagon, and I want to train, you know. And, it, it, you know, if that had happened, then the, the reality of the situation is this, is that Leah wouldn't have been satisfied. Because the human condition is such that we can never be satisfied by, by, by something physical or a circumstance or a situation or even by attaining the thing that we want the most in this life. But the only thing that will ever satisfy us truly is when we're in a right place with God. And when he becomes not the source of what we need, but the source of our satisfaction himself. And that's when life really is life. And that's what God's seeking to bring forth in Leah. She's full of pain and God has compassion on that pain. But the solution to that pain is not Jacob. It's not a bunch of kids. It's not being a mom. It's not even being the mother of what will one day be the Christ, which she will be. The satisfaction is in God himself. And when she comes to that place, then she says, now will I praise the Lord. And a chapter of her life, a struggle that has lasted for years, comes to rest. It finds a landing place. It says that then she left off bearing. She's satisfied. And satisfaction only comes from God. Amazing how God can work in every life at the same time, isn't it? And we see him doing work in Jacob on his journey. We see God working through Rachel. We see God working in Leah. God doing so many things all at once. And it amazes me that God can look over a room like this and he can see however uh, many of us are here and he sees all of our circumstances. And at the same time that he's doing whatever he's doing in, 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 in one of our lives, he's doing equal number or greater number of things than everyone else's, and he's working it all together for the good all at once according to his plan. And so we see God raising up Jacob in these important years, preparing him for what is yet to be as he will be the father of the 12 tribes that will become the sons of Israel. I pray this morning for each of us that we would see our lives not as uh, um, just a time span or an accident or, or, or something that doesn't matter, but that we would see that God very much has a course for each one of us. The Bible says that he knows the thoughts that he thinks towards us. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. In the King James it says, to bring us to an expected end. Ephesians 2.10 says that he has before ordained good works, that we should walk in them. He has a plan for our lives. And everything that we're going through is both preparing us for that plan and also fulfilling that plan all simultaneously at the same time. And when we get our eyes off of the reality of that, that's when life goes haywire. We spin off, we, we turn to the left or to the right, and God has to bring us back or, you know, there's discipline or we sow to the flesh or whatever, whatever the case might be. But I pray this morning that God would help us to see with eternal eyes that this is the lesser reality and that his kingdom and his eternal life is the greater reality. 
and that our emphasis and priority and focus would ever be upon that which is eternal, that we wouldn't come short of it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, I'll close with this verse. It says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed, pay closer attention to those things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip or drift away. And it's so easy in this life, isn't it, to drift from what's important and eternal into that which is unimportant and temporal. But God keep us on the path and keep our eyes fixed on him, that our path, our course, that we might say with Paul, that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the grace of God. So God, give us wisdom. May we have vision for our own life and we would understand uh, the plans that he has for us and that we'd walk in those plans. Amen? Amen.